the kids, I just want to take a moment. I want to take a moment to just publicly thank and honor Samuel Johnson. Um, where did he go to? He was there. He probably. Wherever Samuel is, give him some extra thanks today. June, yes. June has been a, June has been a month for this man. Um, he helped lead our efforts around Champ Camp, led our efforts around Rancho 3M, which if you've never done anything like that, um, it is just so easy to underestimate everything that's involved with that. So, Samuel, we are grateful for you. We're grateful for the way in June, particularly some of the major ways you've served our church. And we just want to say thank you to you. Thank you for that. All right, kids, now you may go. Have fun learning about the Lord and hope, kids. Also, while they're going, I want to remind you that this, this coming Saturday morning, this coming Saturday morning is D-group training for any D-group leaders or wannabe leaders of D-group this Saturday at the Church Light. And I want to remind you, now out on Realm, there is a registration event for the marriage workshop that we're having on July 14th and 15th, a Friday night and a Saturday morning. Please consider coming to this. Um, marriage and parenting are two foundational things that we want to regularly be touching on um, in our church, and we have um, a weekend plan that we think will really serve you well in this regard. So look for that on Realm, and please register ahead of time so we know um, how much material to print up and how much food to order for the things we're doing there as well. All right. Please go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation 3. We're going to be in verses 14 through 22 today as we look at the seventh letter uh, to the churches in Revelation, specifically to Laodicea. Let me ask you this. Do you consider yourself an above-average driver? Are you an above-average driver? A recent survey, 93% of people said, yes, I am an above-average driver. So all but 7% believe themselves better than average. About a decade ago, a million high school seniors were surveyed. And in that survey, 70% of them believe themselves to be above average in the term of leadership. But get this, 100% of them, 100% of this 1 million high school seniors said they are above average at getting along with others. Yeah, 60% of them said they were in the top 10%. 25% of them said, I am in the top one. I am elite at getting along with other people. Many studies over the years have shown that people, especially those people in affluent countries like the United States, tend to think very favorably of themselves when comparing themselves with others. Social psychologists have actually termed a phrase for this. It's called illusory superiority. Illusory superiority. The Bible has a term for it. It's called self-deception and pride. <laughs> this morning, as we look at Christ's letter to the Laodicean church, we're going to see a very affluent church that has convinced themselves that they are doing much better than they really are. They have a puffed-up opinion of themselves because as you'll see, Jesus says it's because they're blind. They're blind to their true condition. They're not seeing clearly. And like a lighthouse to a ship that's lost in the fog, heading toward the imminent danger of cliffs, 
Jesus is going to bring clarity to this, their situation, and he's going to counsel them on the course correction that's needed to avoid the imminent disaster they are heading toward. In fact, Laodicea is the only of the seven churches that receives absolutely no commendation from Jesus. Sardis was close, but there was a little bit. There were a few still there in Sardis. Laodicea receives no commendation at all. But what they receive from Jesus is a stern rebuke, and they also receive a merciful invitation. Today we're going to see that it is critical, it is essential that we rely on Christ and his resources rather than our own. It's critical that we rely on Christ and his resources rather than our own. Let's start reading in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire, so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Thank you, Lord, for this word. This morning, we're going to do a few things. We're going to first, we're going to explore this delusion of self-sufficiency, and then we're going to look at the sufficiency of Christ to his church. And then we're going to consider how we might heed the warning that is given to this Laodicean church. So point number one is the delusion of self-sufficiency. So as I mentioned already, Laodicea was a very affluent city. It was a banking center that had lots of wealth. It was also a fashion center. They were specifically known for the raven black wool that they had there. It was, it was really desired uh, for its uniqueness and was considered a very luxurious thing to have. They were also known for a famous medical school that they had there that specialized in ophthalmology. For those of you that don't know what ophthalmology is, eye doctors. They were known for their eye doctors in Laodicea. People would travel from afar to obtain this powder that was made there that would get put on their eyes. Uh, weak and ailing eyes would benefit from this powder coming from this. Laodicea had a lot going for it. I mean, in many ways, the people living there, they were thriving. They were living the good life. So good of a life that the church there had deceived themselves into thinking that they were doing great, able to meet all of their needs on their own. But Jesus had a different take on their situation. And the very one, um, and like 
like every one of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus begins his addressing of them by reminding them who he is. And here to the Laodicean church, he tells them that he is the amen. He's asserting here the truthfulness of his promises. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, the verse says this, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Christ is the amen, the one who fulfills all of his promises. His promises are trustworthy. And next he asserts himself as the faithful and true witness. You might recall from last week in our message where we talked about in Revelation this attribution of being true is generally used in the context of judging and avenging. Jesus is saying here that his assessment, his judgment of the Laodicean believers is true. His witness, his testimony of them is perfectly accurate. Lastly, he identifies himself as the beginning of God's creation. This description would have been very familiar to this church. Laodicea was located very close to the city of Colossae. And we see in Paul's letter that he wrote to the Colossian church that he instructs them to read this letter to Laodicea as well. So Paul's saying, hey, Colossians, take this letter to you. Read it to the Laodicean church as well. And here's part of what they would have heard in Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He, referring to Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is reminding this Laodicean church here that he is the originator of all things. Everything that exists, everything they have comes from from him and is governed by him. He is the firstborn of the new creation, the resurrection. In short, Jesus is telling this church, all of my promises are true, my testimony is true, and I am the source and ruler of all things. And here is what this truth-telling sovereign testifies of them. Look at verses 15, 16, and 17 again. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, verses 15 and 16 here, they're often misinterpreted and misapplied, generally with the intention of trying to get people fired up for Jesus. The argument usually goes like this. 
if you are lukewarm, that means you are too indifferent or you're too meh about the things of the Lord. And you need to get fired up. You need to get hot for Jesus. You need to have that passion come through and get serious and on fire for the Lord. Well, if that's a correct interpretation of this, then why would Jesus say in verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 15, that he wishes that they would either be hot or cold? I mean, if we presume this on fire for Jesus argument, then why would Jesus say it's okay to be cold? Isn't that going the wrong direction? Did Jesus misspeak here? Well, of course Jesus didn't misspeak here. His testimony is true. Laodicea was situated on a plateau. They were between two cities, and they had a horrible water supply, a wretched water supply. The water that would naturally make its way to the city came from these two cities of Hierapolis and Colossae. And Hierapolis had these mineral-rich hot springs that they were known for, had many healing properties in the, the, those mineral-rich waters. Colossae had these mountain-fed streams that were cool and rich and refreshing, and they were deemed to be healthy for you as well. By the time that water would naturally make its way to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. It was murky and very unhealthy. It would actually make people sick and induce vomiting. If you drank the water that you just found there in Laodicea, you would get sick and vomit. So Laodicea actually had to construct what ended up being a very impressive aqueduct system that would get water from those two cities quickly into them so they had healthy water. Jesus is saying to this church, Laodicean church, you're lukewarm like the disgusting water in your city. You have no helpful quality to you. I wish you were hot or cold and good for something, but you're not. And he bluntly tells these believers, you make me want to vomit. You make me sick. This may be a category you don't often consider. Sometimes our lives can smell like polluted water and give Jesus the gag reflex. And then when someone who loves us humbly submits an observation about that to us, we can often too readily become defensive and offended before considering whether or not we're just blissfully unaware of our true condition like the Laodicean church. But Jesus doesn't leave these believers in the dark about why he would say this, like why he, he's just sickened by this. This truth teller explains to them exactly why he says this. And he indicts the Laodicean believers, informing them that they have a delusion of their own self-sufficiency. They're thinking too much of themselves. In verse 17, they said, I am rich. I don't need anything. I don't need anything from anyone. But Jesus says, no, I know how you really are. You're wretched. You're pitiable, not, not something worth admir ad admiration or admiring. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. These believers have bought into the lie and the culture of the affluent society that they are leaving in. Believing that they are meeting their own needs, they're master of their own fate, or as the famous post said, captain of my own soul. 
They are not dependent on anything or anyone. I've got this, is what they're saying. Greg Beal comments that Jesus is giving these believers the same assessment he provided in the Old Testament book of Hosea to Ephraim when he said, you are rich, but you're worthless. Hmm. You're rich, but you're worthless. Jesus is telling them that your love of, your trust in your wealth has deceived you into thinking you are fine when you are far from fine. You're really poor, not rich. You're spiritually blind. You're not seeing clearly, and you're naked. Now, nakedness in that culture was the epitome of shame. It was hard to think of a more shameful thing in that society than having your nakedness exposed for everyone to see. I mean, we've seen this throughout Scripture. Just go all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve, what happened when they were sent? All of a sudden, <gasps> we're naked. We need to cover up and hide ourselves. They became aware of their nakedness and they were ashamed. Jesus is stating, if you were to see clearly, church, if you were to see clearly Laodiceans, you would be aware of how shameful and wretched your true condition is. You're not as above average as you think you are. You're actually failing spectacularly. However, don't miss this. To this failing church that Jesus says makes him sick, he extends an offer of mercy. He does not abandon them. He shows them the course correction needed for them to find restored relationship with the Savior. In effect, what Jesus is going to do here is he's going to preach the gospel to the Laodiceans. Our second point is this, the sufficiency of Christ to his church. In verse 18, Jesus counsels the believers on what to do and tells them they need to buy three things from him. They need to buy gold refined by the fire. They need to buy white garments from him to clothe themselves and salve for the eyes. So Jesus has told them that in reality, they are poor, naked, and blind. The city took great pride in its wealth, its fashion, in its ophthalmology. However, their trust in these things has produced the opposite of what they think they have. And here Jesus offers his remedy for all three of these conditions. He says he has refined gold for them. Gold is refined to remove the impurities from it. So Jesus is saying, come get purity. Come obtain righteousness from me. I am the only one who can cleanse you from your wretched, unrighteous state. And Jesus articulates that this is the gold. This gold refined by fire, this is what true wealth is. This is true riches. And then next he tells them to cover up their nakedness with white garments from him. Now, Nathan talked about these garment, garments some in the sermon that uh, we did over Sardis. Revelation 19 talks of these white garments given to those who are redeemed by the Lamb. And they are garments that represent righteousness. And they're a gift. They're not something that these, these redeemed people earned. 
This is a stark contrast to the black wool garments of the city that they were so proud of. James Hamilton says this, he says, Jesus is calling the church to leave off their attempts to clothe themselves. In the physical sense, they may be wearing lavish Laodicean garments, but in their self-reliance, Jesus says in verse 17, they are naked. Jesus says, stop parading around so foolishly in your nakedness, thinking that you're not behaving shamefully when you are. Trade in that which you have crafted and trusted in, you're so proud of, trade that in for that which only I can give you. Friends, it's worth considering, is there any way that we are attempting to clothe ourselves? Are we self-reliant in any way? The third thing that Jesus counsels them to buy is salve for their eyes, he says, so that you can see clearly. Not only is the Laodicean church acting shamefully, boasting in their own sufficiency, they are completely blind to it. They are in spiritual crisis and they're oblivious. They have no idea. Jesus is telling them to stop trusting in their own affluence, their fancy fashion, their famous medical expertise, and get better alternatives to all three of these things from Christ. You thought you had wealth, come get true riches. You thought your shame was covered by your fine black garments, come get white garments from me. You thought you saw accurately with your cutting-edge eye care, but come to me so you can truly see clearly. See, this counsel in Revelation 3 is reminiscent of the Lord's invitation expressed in Isaiah 55. Let's look at the first three verses of Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Greg Beale comments, only in Christ are true riches, clothing, and insight. Indeed, Jesus himself established the fount of all true wealth through his own faithful witness in the midst of the suffering of the cross. This Laodicean church, wealthy in the riches of the world, they're buying the wrong stuff. They're buying the wrong things. They are all in to the cultural and economic system of the world. They're thriving in their own eyes all the while they are spiritually bankrupt. They've forsaken fellowship with the Lord for fellowship with the world. They are sprinting down the path of destruction, throwing a party as they go, and Jesus says, it makes him sick. But Jesus pronounces in verse 19, he says, I will reprove and discipline you because I love you. Be 
because I love you. It's not all that different from how a parent might discipline a child out of love. It's love when a parent enforces boundaries for their children to protect them. It's love when a parent commands their child to back away from a venomous snake. Like this child, the Laodicean church is headed for disaster, and the Lord lovingly steps in to correct them. Oh, how quickly we can become resistant. Or we might even rebuke the discipline that the Lord brings to us. But Jesus says, I love you, and I am not going to ignore this because of that. I'm going to bring my true assessment, my true correction, my true counsel to you and offer you restoration. The proper response to this is in verse 19. Be zealous and repent. Turn around. Correct the course. Look to Christ to provide what you really need. Stop relying on your own resources and rely on that which the Lord will freely give you. In verse 20, we see the generous mercy of Christ on full display. Jesus says that He's knocking at the door, waiting on an invitation to come in and fellowship. He's there knocking. See, it was common in Laodicea for Roman officers to just barge into a residence and demand to be fed, sit down and be taken care of. Jesus, the supreme ruler of the universe, who Psalm 24 says owns the world and everything in it, he stands at the door and he knocks. He would have every right to barge in. It's all his. But he doesn't. He says, listen for my knock. Listen for me. And then open the door. Listen for me and open the door to me. He says, don't tune me out. Actively seek out a relationship with me. Seek to commune with me, to fellowship with me. I'm waiting for you. Have you ever been so consumed or so focused on a task that you're just completely oblivious to whatever's going on around you? Somebody's trying to talk to you and you, like, you don't even hear them talking and they're like, how are you not even acknowledging me right now? I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you. Jesus is saying, hey, turn your gaze Turn your attention from that which has consumed your focus and listen to me. Listen for me. Commune with me. Are we distracted in any way with our affluence, our self-sufficiency? Is our love and desire for the things in this world drowning out the beckoning knock of the Savior to come and relate with Him, to be satisfied in Him, to come and have the richest of all experiences in Him. 
Often, this verse of knocking and opening the door is also ripped out of context and used as a call to unbelievers. Jesus is saying this to believers. He's not talking to the unsaved here. These believers are being called to repentance. They're being called to stop forsaking the Lord for their own pursuits. Stop loving the culture and the world more than loving Christ. Stop relying on your own works and not Christ's work. Be zealous and repent. And startingly, he doesn't just offer them a renewed, restored relationship with them. He promises in verse 21 that the one who conquers will sit with him on his throne just as he conquered and sat down with the Father. 2 Timothy 2.12 says that if we endure, we'll reign with him. Revelation 20 verse 4 says we're going to reign with Christ. Oh, church, do not miss the scandalous reality of the gospel. Jesus is lovingly offering to restore self-absorbed, self-deceived, wretched, pitiful sinners who are 100% convinced they are living their best life now. And he's offering them an opportunity to exchange their unrighteousness for his righteousness, to have their eyes opened, to see clearly, to spend eternity with this glorious Savior, sharing in some manner the rule of heaven with him. What an offer! What a gift! What a Savior! So it behooves us to ask a question. How did this happen to this church? How did they get here? I mean, this church was doing well at some point, but now they are in spiritual crisis. What happened? I do not believe that Risen Hope Church as a whole needs to be corrected by this passage. I do not believe our church as a whole needs to be corrected by this passage though it's not unreasonable to think that there may be some in this room that do. However, I do think every single one of us should heed the warning of the Laodicean church. The environment we're in, it's not all that different from theirs. It's not that dissimilar. We live in an affluent country and culture. In general, we rarely, if ever, have to worry about whether we're going to have food at our next meal we're trying to figure out what we want to have because there's so much available to us. We aren't trying to figure out, am I going to have clothes to wear? We spend time in our closets laboring over what to wear of the many things that are available to us. So how do we guard against this story becoming the story of Risen Hope Church? In other words, how do we apply this message to our hearts and lives? I think it's essential we think through this rather than being like the high school students who just believe themselves to be above average in every way. We shouldn't neglect to realize that without diligence and grace from the Savior, this could happen to us. The third point today is heeding the warning. 
In preparing for this message, I was uh, served very well by some teaching of C.J. Mahaney on this topic, and um, much of what I wanted to intend, or what I intended to share with you today was just refined and served very well by his teaching, and I just want to give credit where that's due. Let me ask you this, friends. Have you considered your relationship with wealth? I think it's something we need to give very careful consideration to. Greg Beal comments, it is a consistent theme of Scripture that wealth has to be handled carefully and stewarded to God's glory or it will consume its owner. Such an all-consuming pursuit of wealth leads to idolatry. This is not an endorsement of poverty, for part of God's blessing on Israel was its prosperity. The question, however, is how we use what God has given us. A Christian's prosperity is measured by how much he gives rather than by how much he has. A Christian's prosperity is measured by how much he gives rather than how much he has. Scripture teaches that you must steward wealth for God's glory or it's going to eat you alive. It's going to eat you up. Your heart will grow harder and you will progressively become more and more and more and more blind to it. So how do we handle wealth rightly? 1 Timothy 6, verses 17, 18, and 19 gives some very helpful and practical counsel to us. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. We are not to be arrogant in our wealth. We're not to set our hope on its uncertainty, but we're supposed to put our hope in God who richly provides everything to enjoy. Paul says to Timothy, let these folks be rich in their generosity. Let them be rich in their good works. Interestingly, he didn't tell them to feel guilty about their wealth. That's not in there at all. He tells them to steward it for God's glory and purposes, and as a result, reap true life then. Prosperity is a blessing, and it's also a test. It's both a blessing and a test. Let me pause and just say for a moment, this week I had the responsibility and privilege to enter into our tracking system the pledges that you all were turning in. And there were a few pledges from folks. I couldn't keep the tears from welling up in my eyes. I'm just sitting, in, sitting alone in a room, pushing buttons on a keyboard, and I've got tears welling up in my eyes. There are folks that I know are not sitting on bags of cash trying to figure out what to do with them. Hey, I guess maybe I'll toss a bag toward the shell building. 
These are people that were sacrificially giving. It was a holy moment. And I don't say that lightly. Seeing the generosity of those I know are not sitting on those bags of cash. I was humbled. I was humbled to see member after member storing their treasures up in heaven for the glory of their Savior. I'm humbled and I am grateful for your example and your act of worship. And it would be wrong for me to not tell you that. We've said repeatedly today that our wealth and possessions should not possess us. It should not be the source of our hope or the target of our affections. That being said, we did just read in 1 Timothy that God's given us everything to enjoy. So how do we enjoy the good gifts that God gives us but not let them snare our heart? How do I know if I'm merely enjoying a gift that God has graciously given or if it's wooing my heart toward a place that makes Jesus sick? Well, John Piper provides very helpful counsel to this question. This is a long quote. It's worth every word. Enjoyment has become idolatrous when it is not permeated with gratitude. When our enjoyment of something tends to make us not think of God, it's moving toward idolatry. But if the enjoyment gives rise of the feeling of gratefulness to God, we are being protected from idolatry. The grateful feeling that we don't deserve this gift or this enjoyment, but have it freely from God's grace is evidence that idolatry is being checked. Enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it does not see in God's gift that God himself is to be desired more than the gift. If the gift is not awakening a sense that God the giver is better than the gift, it's becoming an idol. Gifts from God are never intended to be a replacement for God. They are intended to stoke your affections for God. To stir up gratitude in your heart to God who has graciously given them to us. Remember, we did not merit any of this. Because of our sin, what we've merited is eternal punishment. But Christ has offered mercy and grace to the repentant heart. Hallelujah. The giver, hear this, the giver is always, 100% of the time, better than the gift. The giver is always better than the gift. Gifts are to be enjoyed in the context that we do not deserve these gifts because of our sinfulness. But God, in His generosity, blesses us with things designed to put on prominent display the glory of God's kindness, the glory of His grace to us, and to provoke our hearts to love Him more than any gift He could give. Paul Tripp says this, God is unwilling to be your means to what you call the good life. Your relationship with Him must be your definition of the good life. Your relationship with Him 
must be how you define what the good life is. Friends, is your definition of the good life consistent with Jesus' definition of it? Do you value and pursue the counterfeit riches around you more than you value the riches in Christ? Let me close by saying this. I expect the Laodicean believers did not make a conscious choice to just prioritize worldly things and forget about God, to start idolizing created things rather than the creator of those things. Yet they became something that made the Lord sick. They didn't just wake up one day and decide, you know what, I'm feeling rebellious, I'm forsaking the Lord, and I'm living for the world. I bet that didn't happen. When Epaphras planted this church, it was doing well, but it drifted. It drifted. It's like sometimes you don't notice the small day-to-day changes as your children are growing, and then a relative will show up, and you'll be like, look at the difference between visits. You aren't noticing the day-to-day changes, but when you stop and you pull up a picture from a year ago, you're like, is that my kid? They look really different now. We can be unaware of the slow drift that happens daily until one day we look up and we look around and we ask, how did I get here? How did I end up where I am? It didn't just happen while you were sleeping that night. Again, friends, I do not believe the majority in our church need a correction here in how they're stewarding the gifts of the giver. But each of us must be diligent to avoid falling asleep at the wheel and drifting off the road. Diligent to not be drifting off course only to become painfully aware of reality when disaster strikes. Listen for the knock. Open the door. Do this by faithfully ingesting the God-breathed words of truth that you have in your Bible. Do it by feasting on the person of Christ through his word and through prayer. And as you pray, listen. Listen as you pray. Just don't bark off requests like you're leaving a takeout order and going to come back and get what you ordered later at some point in time. Listen. Invest in the relationship. Lean in and ask the Lord to show you more of himself. Ask the Lord to help you love him more. Church family, let's be ruthlessly attentive to heed the warning of this letter and guard our own hearts. It is critical we rely on Christ and not on our own resources. Let the stewarding of your wealth testify of the primacy of of your devotion to King Jesus. Let's listen for his voice as he knocks and then open the door to fellowship with the lover of our soul and the giver of all good gifts. He has a merciful offer. Let's answer the door. Let's pray. Father, Father, forgive us for the times where